Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro. On today's show, I'm speaking to my former client turned friend, Tiffany Diva. I supported Tiffany as she transitioned out of her corporate job and launched her career coaching business at the end of 2017. And around that time we met, I stopped career coaching and focused more on business coaching. And she was the perfect person to send potential clients to. Unfortunately, I'll never forget the day earlier this year when she emailed me saying she had breast cancer and was wondering how I suggested she handle a new client opportunity with this news. I was devastated to hear this, but grateful to have a new friend and be able to share our similar experiences with invisible illness. Our stories are not exactly the same, yet there are many similarities to what we've both gone through. All right, let's get things rolling. Welcome, Tiffany. Harper! Oh, you're the best. Happy to be here! So happy to have you here. So tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do. Loaded question. Okay, so who am I? So as you said, I launched my career coaching business um, last year, October, but historically my background has been in the HR and recruitment space, most recently with Burberry. So I've been in the fashion kind of luxury retail world for the better part of my time in New York, which has been about eight years, but about 12 years recruiting in general and um, launched my business last year just born out of being sick of not having control over my schedule, my life, my creativity, all of the things. And, um, you know, launched a business to really help women mid-career who are in my situation, try and figure out how they can pivot and use their skills in a different way, much like I did. Love it. Love working with you and helping you make the business happen. Yes, you did. Um, so as I said in my intro, I remember the day that you told me that you were diagnosed. What was that journey to your diagnosis like? How did that even come to be? Yeah. Tell the story. Yes. So I was in Iceland in January and Iceland was just a trip to, you know, my husband's in retail and he works for Target. And so the first time he can take vacation after the blackout period that is known as the holiday season is January. So we always celebrate that or try to with a trip. We did go to Iceland and then I was in the shower, um, loofing and of course, imagining if my boobs were perkier as you do when you get to be mid thirties. And when I was performing that exercise, I found a lump and I am a former WebMD junkie and super anxious person in general. And so I don't take that stuff very lightly I'm not the person that can kind of just blow that off and say, okay, it's probably nothing because I'm not 40 yet. I'm, you know, healthy, this, that, and the other thing. I immediately sprung to action and jumped on Google and fell down that rabbit hole that you fall down when you are kind of hit with something like that and kind of put it out or tried to put it out of my mind, I should say, while we were on the trip. And I didn't actually mention anything to Steve. It's funny about this, but I didn't really mention that I found anything until right before I made the appointment. Whoa. Which is actually I didn't the first know that. That's actually the first time I'm saying that out loud. I haven't even written about that. But if I'm thinking back about it, um, I kept like every day I would keep feeling and like, okay, it's still there. And I would get my period and I'd be like, 
okay, well maybe it's because I'm on my period and it's hormones, but then it would still be there. And then finally, I just, because I kept telling myself it's probably nothing, I just didn't want to worry him. But then right before I made the appointment with my OB to get it checked out, I was like, oh, by the way, I'm going to see Dr. Durante because I think I found a lump. And he was like, wait, what? And so I never told him anything in Iceland or anything. And then finally, I was just like, going to see the OB. And then I did. And she... Hold on a second. Oh, yes. Before you get to the doctor. Oh, yes. Do you think that you were taking it seriously or you didn't think it was serious so you didn't tell Steve? I think both, to be honest with you. I think I have this very anxious part of my brain that thought that it was something. And then there was this other part that was like, no, you're just being anxious and falling down this rabbit hole and Googling too much. It's probably nothing, but you're wise to get it checked out anyway. Thankfully, I did. So we're at the doctor's now. And I am obsessed with my doctor. Shout out to Dr. Durante of Mount Sinai West. We'll link her in the show notes. (laughs) Actually, I've referred three people to her, so I should be put on that payroll. Wow. I'm not kidding. Three people in a row. But it's just, it's insane. When you find the doctor that you love and trust. Right. And she got me through my miscarriage, which also happened like two months before. So I had a real solid last sort of eight to nine months. I will will say that. Um, I'm due to win the lottery for sure. But yeah, so I get there and she's lovely and she said, look, I don't think this is anything, but I know you. And if this is going to make you feel better, let me order you a mammogram and ultrasound. And I said, that would make me feel better. So she did. And then I guess about a week later I went and um, if you've ever had a mammogram or ultrasound or any type of scan, really the text, I hate the text because they can't really say anything and they just sort of blank stare and they're, they're looking at this screen and you're laying there perfectly still and you're trying to read every single one of their facial expressions. And if they make like, I think my tech at one point did like a deep sigh. And I'm like, what does that mean? Jesus I Christ. I know that so well. And I'm like, oh my God, just tell me. So I'll get to this, but I, being your own advocate is a big thing. And I wasn't going to just sit there and let them not tell me anything. So I'm like, can you just, you see these all the time. Can you tell me? And they, the one woman said, can you just wait in the other room? We need to call the radiologist. And I was like, oh, cool. Oh. So the radiologist on site, that's typically on site, wasn't there. And so I'm in this room by myself. Steve's not with me, of course, because this is nothing for all intents and purposes. And then they call me and they say, the radiologist would like to speak with you on the phone. And I'm like, on the phone? And she's like, yeah, he's not here today. I said, great. So I get on the phone and this guy is just, you know, very abrupt and abrasive. And he's like, okay, give me your name, birthday, all that I did. And he said, we found some calcifications that are abnormal looking on your ultrasound and we, we will recommend you get a biopsy. And that was it. He might as well have just hung up the phone because he sort of didn't explain what any of that means. I'm like, what is a calcification for one? And I said, okay. And I remember saying, do I have reason to be concerned here? And he goes, I don't really know. And I said, okay. So he does know by the way, but he just like is being a dick. Sorry, but he is. And I hung up the phone and I remember being like, Oh, wow. So at that moment, I was like, this isn't just nothing anymore. So now I'm in the most anxious state possible because now I have to wait for this biopsy and then wait for those results. And the biggest center of anxiety around having anything, and I know you can attest to this, Harper, is just the waiting on results. The waiting is probably the biggest source of all the anxiety because you're like, once you know and you have a plan, you're like, great, let's do this. 
But when you're waiting and you're imagining the worst, you're like, that's the darkest place you'll ever be. Horrible. To your point about the text, they don't see us as humans. We are the next person that they have to service. Numbers. They're numbers, correct. And that's a really challenging thing with all of this. I mean, I'm coming to this interview right now, coming from NYU, getting blood work and an Mm x-ray. And it's just like, next, next, who's here? It's like a cattle call. Yeah. There's not a like, oh, you're dealing with this. I'm so sorry. How are you? You are not a human in those situations. So it's really tough. And the waiting is just brutal. What could be hours or days feels like a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yes. now you're playing the waiting game. So I'm playing the waiting game. Then I go to the biopsy that Monday, and I meet this like super rude radiologist guy that hates life in person because he's the one doing the biopsy, and he does it. And then I say I'm like half naked on the table, and I'm like leaning up on my arms like this, and I'm like, "So doc, I said you need to level with me here." Because you see these all day, every day. I need to know right now, do you think this is something? Because I'm not going to be able to sleep. And I said it just like that. And he looked at me and he goes, okay. He's like, if you want the honest truth, I believe this to be a non-invasive cancer situation that's sort of contained to your milk duct that's very treatable. And I said, that's all I needed to hear. And he's like, you're going to be fine. And I'm like, oh, good. So you have an actual personality. So then... To me, that is why I think when I actually got diagnosed, I didn't have this major, major meltdown because I was pushing, pushing, pushing to get as many answers as I could up front because I know myself, right? Waiting, I would sit there and spontaneously combust. That's just my modus operandi. So I'm like, okay, just tell me. He leveled with me. So I went out in the waiting room and I said, Steve, so it looks like I probably have cancer. So let's just like start prepping people for this. What does that mean? What does prepping people for this mean? Well, that just meant family, just like finally letting my mom know what was going on, finally letting immediate family members go, okay, so by the way, this week I've had a mammogram, an ultrasound, and a biopsy. How has your day been? And just sort of looping people in that needed to know. Okay. Yes. So then... I waited for results for probably two days and I decided to go for a run on the treadmill. It was a Friday. I think the 8th of March was a Friday. I can't remember the actual day, but the date was the 8th and I was running on the treadmill. Destiny's child survivor because I'm like, this is an omen, a good or a bad omen. And I get the call from Dr. Durante, who's my OB. And she says, okay, I have the results here, but did the radiologist call you? And I said, no, he hasn't called me yet. And she said, well, I'm going to explain to you what I know, but this this piece isn't so much my wheelhouse, so I might get a few things. She's like, I'm not going to be able to give you the details, but I can tell you what this report says. And I said, okay, tell me. And she said, it is cancer. She said, it, it looks like it's DCIS, which ductal carcinoma in situ is really like a stage zero cancer, meaning it's very contained to your milk ducts and doesn't kind of go anywhere. And then there was a small invasive tumor. Um, and the invasive ductal carcinoma is the kind that can spread. It is what I like to call the most basic bitch of cancers because that's typically what people get is invasive ductal carcinoma or DCIS. There's several different other types of breast cancer, but this is kind of the most common. And that's what she shared with me. And she's like, any sort of intricate details, you might just want to review with the radiologist who then ended up calling me probably an hour later and kind of said the same thing and said, you know, you might want to consult with your OB on people within the practice that we can refer you to so you can meet with the surgeon and with a plastic surgeon as well. So even though she's referring to this 
as not so invasive and not so scary, and you're thinking of it as the basic bitch, is it still the scariest thing you'd ever heard? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Because your mind goes from, wait, I'm just, I'm just sitting here doing my own thing. I'm like the healthiest person I know. You know, I work out, I, you know, eat really well, all of this thing. How did I go from that to all of a sudden I have this crazy thing happening? Oh, and by the way, I feel great. So that's the ultimate fuck you from cancer is like, you know, there are so many are so asymptomatic. I mean, yeah, I had a lump, but I felt fine. And so you, your mind goes from, I'm just doing my thing to holy shit. Now, now what in a matter of seconds? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the kind of thing that comes with invisible illness. Mm -hmm. You have no idea that something's going on. Right. So you could be walking around with something and have no idea. And that's where it's amazing that you were preventative of like, okay, this bump is not going anywhere. Yeah. What's going on? I got to get checked out. And I know that, you know, a big thing we'll address here is you're really helping people to raise awareness and to get people checking out their body, you know, doing a mammogram and seeing what's going on because you just have no idea, even if you don't have symptoms. Exactly. You can feel healthy and think you're healthy and not truly know what's happening behind that. Yes. I'm a poster child of that, clearly. So what happens next? So then I go and I get referrals because I was originally, since my OB is with Sinai, she referred me to a breast surgeon that's quite recommended um, within the practice that I made appointments with. So I made an appointment with her and then we went into to kind of meet with her and her team and sort of understand kind of what next steps would be and which were, was eventually another mammogram because thankfully I just adore her, but she's like, yeah, I know you already had this, but I want my radiologist to do it because that's how doctors are. You know, yes. they're very territorial with their My the doctors crew, do that too. Which yes. I love that though, because they want to see for themselves. And I'm like, what can hurt? She's like, did they give you a mammogram and you're right? And I said, no. And they're like, why not? And I'm wow. like, solid question. And she's like, we're going to do your left again. You're right. And then I was going to get an MRI on my MRI just to make sure like, it's just a clearer picture. And um, then I was supposed to meet with the breast breast surgeon or a plastic surgeon that day as well. So it was a full day of appointments. And I remember being on the table when they were giving me an ultrasound for my right breast and they were, they spent so much time on it that I'm like, fuck, I probably have it in my right too. And I started sweating and then they left the room. See, they leave the room. If any radiologists or techs are listening, when y'all leave the room and you don't come back for a solid 25, literally was on that table for 25 minutes. I had to text Steve who was in the waiting room and say, I'm going to be late to my MRI because they're making me wait. Like, oh my gosh, this radiologist is going over my results and like something crazy is happening. They come and they're like, your right breast is great. You're fine. There's just such a lack in communication. And bedside manner. Yeah, that's huge. Which is so important to me. Bedside manner is one of the biggest things for me and everything that I've been through and talking to people about. It is just so hard to imagine how someone can walk out of the room or think that it's totally fine to not address a situation when you're yeah. sitting there in panic mode. And I was in panic mode. But then they come in and they're like, you're fine. You can get dressed. And I'm like, great. And they're like, so sorry for the wait, but, you know, we're backed up today. Which they could have said sort of before they left the room. And then I would have been like, oh, okay, I'm waiting. But no, out. And then I was in there for 25 minutes. And then I get the rest of the tests and then I come back 
to the surgeon and she basically tells me, okay, so let's schedule a surgery date. And then we, we move to do that. Now, some people get chemo first before they do the surgery. And that typically is if they have a larger tumor or there's something else. Some people do, a lot of people actually get chemo first. And I was to get, they were like, do you want to do a double mastectomy or do you just want to do, you know, a unilateral? And some women, I know it's a very tough decision for them to decide to do a double if they don't have to. It was one of the easier decisions I had to make. Why? So I'm like, I know me and my anxiety. And it's like, you're, I'm already on the table. I'm already knocked out. You know, if we're going to do this, let's just do it. Yeah. Like, give me a new rack. Great. Fine. And let's just keep it moving. Like, I wouldn't want to have to deal with this again a couple years later. Let's just get rid of it. So when was that surgery? It was March 29th, end of March. And what was that recovery like? So the recovery for that, people think I'm crazy, but it really wasn't that bad. I don't think that surgery was bad at all. I woke up from that surgery and one of the things that my plastic surgeon told me and his PAs were, you know, when you first decide to look at your new chest, you know, make sure you're with somebody that is supportive. It's like what people say, like, when you're like, I never have done mushrooms, but I've had several friends that have done mushrooms. I'm like, make sure you're with someone you trust. And I'm like, a safe space, a safe space. Same with checking out your new rack. And I didn't care. I like looked and I was like, oh, these look, these aren't bad. And Steve's like, wow, you really like don't care. And I'm like, no, I'm like, there's no cancer. I don't care. Like, and maybe if I were single or I had like, like, I didn't have like this thing with my boobs, like some people do. You've been with Steve for how long? 16 years together, 10 married. So I'm like, look, you've, you've seen it. You've seen it for a while and now you're going to see something else. Yep. So I looked at it and I was like, fine. I was up and walking pretty instantly, which they want you to do, you know, cause they want you to keep your blood flowing and circulation and all of that. But I remember, and, and I think it's partially because I'm in good shape and I'm young and you know, I can get up and do things, but, and also I, I give credit to my mom my mom's a nurse and she came in for the week and, you know, I was somebody that was really afraid to take all these pain meds. For example, they were like giving me Valium and Percocet and just loading me up. And I was nervous that I was like, going to get addicted to it. And my mom, who's a nurse and a very smart woman, she says to me, no, we have to get ahead of the pain. So even if you're not feeling something for the first few days, I, we are going to have you take the Percocet every eight hours or whatnot so that you're ahead of it. And thank, thankfully we did. I mean, she had like this little spreadsheet at our house with every time I took a pill and it was life-saving because I never was really in that much pain. Like, yeah, I was sore, but it wasn't that bad. It's so important to surround yourself with a team like that yeah. between your husband and your mom and supportive friends and family members to have those people that can advocate for you, totally. especially in the times when you don't have the ability or strength to advocate for yourself because there aren't many doctors out there that are advocating for their patients. And so you got to make sure that you have a voice in this situation and that there's someone there that knows what's best for you or is working alongside you to know what's best for you and say, okay, this is what needs to happen. We need to take these pills yeah. and be preventative. Yeah. I literally only took the Percocet for a couple of days. And then sometimes they said you could take Valium and two Tylenol, but apparently I was sort of cranky on Valium, so they took that away from me. Steve's like, You are so cranky on Valium. We had to take that from you. And I'm like, 
Okay. Um, first of all, I thought Valium was supposed to make you really like chill, and apparently I was grumpy. So fine. No Everyone has different no side effects. Okay, so you're walking around with this necklace that says Sea Dream on it. C D R E A M. We yeah. will post a photo in the show notes and on Instagram so you can check out what it is that she's wearing. Talk to me about what that is and what it stands for. Yes. So Sea Dream stands for cancer doesn't rule everything around me. So anyone that's listening that's a big hip hop person like me, specifically Wu Tang, knows that they say cash doesn't cash rules cash rules everything around me, which great for them. But I wanted to take the spin for the project that I worked on sort of while I was going through recovery on this blog called Cancer Doesn't Rule Everything Around Me. And really the basis of this is that I'm not taking cancer shit. So I wanted to create this space for people in my situation who are younger, who are dealing with a diagnosis. I wanted to create the space for them to come and just read about my journey soup to nuts. And so I, even before I got this together, I was taking an Evernote every day of up into my surgery, what I was feeling and thinking from the first day that I was diagnosed to my surgery. And then I recovered and then I started creating content sort of after that. And I launched the blog about two weeks after my surgery. And I do want to give a shout out to your trusted friend of mine, Krista Gray of Gold Square, because she actually put that blog template together for me for free. That's really amazing. Because she wanted to do that for me. Krista's incredible. And she did she did all the design work for the podcast. So we love, love, love love Krista. Krista. Okay. Anyway. So well, I think the really interesting thing about launching this blog, and I've said this to you before, is that you decided to start sharing pretty publicly from the start. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people, and that's the reason why we have this podcast here, one of the many reasons, is People are not sharing the experiences while they're going through it. They want to get to the other side, whatever that looks like, or at least get to a certain steady place before they start telling people. So I wonder what was it for you that said, I need to be vocal about this now, not when I've had my, you know, surgery and gone through chemo already. You're going through chemo right now. Yes. So why did you choose to share that? Well, I'd like to consider myself sort of a method writer, if you will, because I feel like the experiences and what I was going through, I'm pretty raw emotion. I wanted that. I wanted to capture that as I was feeling it. And I think that's when I really convey the best message and can really be as authentic as possible is when I'm going through that. So the day that I was diagnosed and I had myself a good cry and did all the things that you, that you do when you're diagnosed with something, but then I pull out my phone and I'm like, okay, so Tiffany, talk to me. How are you feeling right now? What are you doing? What are the emotions? What And everything is captured so that I can really be authentic with the people reading. Because I will say this, that when I was initially Googling for resources and answers and all of that, when I was diagnosed, it was very dated and not very promising material. I mean, no disrespect to the Susan G. Comans or the, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just I think it's for a specific target audience. It's quite clinical. And I wanted to read like real shit from real bitches. And so one of my really good friends I used to work with at Tiffany and Company, she texted me and she said, I have a friend that has virtually almost the same diagnosis as you. And she's in remission now. And she did a blog. I'm on the blog is called Grancer. Her name is Grace. And so she did the play on words there. And we might want to link to that in the show notes too, just because it was all I read for one week straight. 
like I read all of her posts and she, and I was like, oh my gosh, look at her. She's got a couple kids. She's got dogs. She's got husband. She lives in Illinois. She's doing it. And she's being such an advocate. And it was funny and digestible information and just really, really timely for what I needed to read. I didn't need to read statistics on Susan G. Komen or survival rates or all of the, the things that you read that scare you. I wanted to read, oh, this girl's a survivor. And by the way, she throws some humor in there and she's, look at her, she's fine and she's doing great. And I'm like, that is what I want to read. And so I said, okay, it's clear that I need to do this too, because I have my own audience. And so that's sort of what, that's a big part of how I kind of started Cedric. It sounds like the relatability is a huge part of it. Cancer doesn't rule anything around me is exactly the point of why writing this blog is so important. You recognize that you don't want your identity and your purpose on this planet to be that you receive this diagnosis. Yes. And when you read this girl's blog, there was something relatable to you that said, huh, she's got a quote unquote normal life and is going through this, but it is not ruling her life. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is one could argue because I'm an advocate. I talk about it a lot. I wear this necklace. I actually talked about this with my oncologist a couple weeks ago because she asked me, do you think, do you think that you're being defined by this because you talk about it so much and that you're advocating and you're kind of always doing the writing about it? And I told her about, I was doing this and I said, no, because that's really not the point of what I mean when I say, and, and you can probably attest to this too, Harper, is I don't mean when I say I'm not letting it define me doesn't mean I'm not going to talk about it and be an advocate. And I'm, I'm just saying that I'm going about my life doing the things that I normally do. I'm not going to let it paralyze me in the way that cancer hopes to do that. It's basically like throwing up a fuck you to cancer and saying, no, like I'm still living my life. Like you're a blip on my radar. And that's kind of what I mean by cancer doesn't rule everything around me is those who follow me on Instagram both my personal and business Instagram, and then also see dream, see that I'm still out having coffee with clients, you know, going to dinner with friends, doing all of the things that I normally do. Um, you know, it's, it's not paralyzing me. And that's the point of it. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that. I mean, yeah. what I think is interesting is I think there are a lot of people that are walking around who are defined by it. And they get so consumed by it that the thought of doing anything or living anything but their illness mm -hmm. is like unfathomable. They're just completely consumed. And I think you received this diagnosis and sort of said, fuck you. I'll accept that I have this, but we are going to do everything that needs to be done to get this out of my life. And I'm going to continue to live a normal life. Mm -hmm. I am not going to stop running my business. I'm not going to stop being the spunky person that I am, you are just going to continue being you. And this is a little blip along the way. I do think that it's really admirable. And we've talked about my hatred of the word courageous and stuff oh, like that. Yeah. But I do truly think it's admirable to be sharing it as you're going through it from the beginning. As you know, I'm someone who took 27 years to be able to tell my best friends and closest people in my life what I was going through with my health. So I think there's a lot of meaning in being able to share so openly and honestly. Have you received responses or feedback to the blog post, to Instagram, to being open 
that were not necessarily what you wanted to hear? I wouldn't say I received any, actually, I've received nothing but the buzzwords of courageous, brave, all of the things. I've not received any criticism, open anyway, if people are talking to behind my back, that whatever will be, will be. Um, But what's interesting about it is I think what people have said to me, mostly people without cancer, I think the people that have cancer that have reached out to me have been really fortunate for it. But the people that haven't have said, oh, I would never be able to do that. So in some way, I think that could be construed as a form of judgment. Like I, wow, I would never be able to share what you shared. And I, I actually met at a five under 40 event, which is a, a non-for-profit for women breast cancer under 40. And she was like bald going through chemo. And she said, I haven't, I haven't told any of my friends I have this. They just, I told them I lost my hair for a different reason. I just don't feel like sharing. And so that's interesting. And everyone again deals with it differently. So an overwhelming amount of people have said to me, I just would never be able to share that info. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think everyone handles stuff differently. Yeah. I'm Um, a talker. Yeah. As am I, but took me a long time to get there. Yeah. But of course, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's like, it's not a one size fits all. Right. How you share. Absolutely. So in sharing, you have your husband, Steve, who I know has been a huge support system. Yeah. And I remember when I met him at an event a few months ago, I was so excited to meet this rock of yours. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about his role in all of this. I mean, I know that he opened a Target store in New York while you were going through chemo. I mean, yeah. tell us about this a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Steve is definitely the type of person who sort of just powers on. I mean... While I have seen him emotional, he's definitely the person that's like this, the ship steadier while I'm the person that's like sort of like all over the place a lot of times. And it's a good balance for sure. I admire so much about how he handles things because not only this, I mean, I started my own business and so clearly I gave up a really great salary and, you know, all of the things that kind of are attached with a stable job to, to really give entrepreneur life a try. So that's a lot of pressure for a partner who's like, Hey, we live in New York and we live a nice lifestyle and we do this, this, and this. So you add that pressure, which I never discount. And then I'm working a little bit less when I'm diagnosed because I'm going to doctor's appointments and I'm not feeling well. So I'm not really giving it a hundred percent. I'm trying, but I, I, I can't for me. So there's that pressure. Then you add on that his role at Target is store team lead, which is, you know, effectively of the leader of the store. And so you know, that's a big weight on your shoulders. And so thankfully, when I was going through the brunt of diagnosis, surgery, recovery, he had a bit more of a flexible schedule because he was in planning mode for the store. So it was working a little bit more normal hours, not weekends, his boss and everybody was super flexible and knew what was going on. And then recently opened the store in the East Village, by the way, on 14th and A. Check it out. Um, And he then it start the schedule starts getting more crazy but he said he told his team his like team of managers and his boss this is what my wife's going through so just know that on the Thursdays that she has chemo I'm not going to be here you can text me or email me because there's a lot of downtime sitting in that chemo chair he can respond to emails but he's just there's no other option and in fact I have five weeks of radiation after this which are Monday through Friday every single day for five weeks and he's like I'm gonna go to all of those and I'm like now, see, they're like five minute sessions a piece, really. Like, but he's like, no, I'm going to go to all of them. And I'm like, but you have a, you have a job. And he's like, 
yeah. I mean, there's no other way for him. He's just a very loyal and dedicated human. It's truly incredible. What is it like to have that as a partner? I mean, unfathomable, I think, you know, I think, you know, when you're, when you're with somebody for a while, you can take that for granted. And I certainly think I went through periods of that. And then this happens and I'm like, oh no, I'm super lucky because then I sit there, I'm going to cry again. Um, then I sit there in the waiting room and I see women by themselves waiting to go into chemo. I know I'll never have to be by myself. Even when Steve's like taking a work trip in a couple months, months, I have like a plethora of people who are like, I'll go with you. It's like they want to go. They want to like check out the like Four Seasons type chemo scene at Memorial Stone Kettering, which let me tell you, it's like, they're nice chemo suites. Um, it's not like what you see in the movies. There's like a TV in there and stuff. We can talk about that later. But, you know, it's just, he's, I, I think I just fell in love with them all over again when this happened, which is, it's nice. It's incredible. It's incredible to have that support and someone who's telling you, no, 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 I'm going to be there. There's yeah. no option here. Yeah. You know, so easily could you say, don't come. And it sounds like you're sort of saying that. I'm like, it doesn't dude, seem... it's like five minutes. I'll be in and out. And he's like, oh yeah, can then I can go to work. And I'm like, I mean, all right, but. That's incredible. Yeah. So you're going through chemo right now. Yeah. You've had the surgery. Yep. What is the road ahead aside from going through radiation? Not that that's not enough. Well, yeah, right. I mean, so chemo will be done like second week of October in which Steve and I have decided to take a lovely trip up to Vermont. Cause I, that's all I wanted was like a quaint fall trip with like no noise or anything. Excellent. And to like chill. Well-deserved. Burlington, Vermont. Awesome place. Then radiation will start and I should be done with that around the holidays, which will be nice. And then after that, I, there's like a, a recovery period from that. And then I can have my implant surgery. Right now, I just have tissue expanders in. They don't want to do any of that surgery. Obviously, when you're going through chemo, that's a lot for your body. So you heal, and then I'll get the implant surgery. Um, and then from there, I'll be on a drug called tamoxifen for 10 years, which is um, like what they call anti-hormonal therapy because my, without getting too clinical, my breast cancer was very hormone-driven. And so hormones essentially feed cancer cells and help them grow quicker. So tamoxifen essentially puts you in an early menopause and slows that down. And I'm on that for 10 years. The good news about this is right now I'm being very preventative about it. I didn't have anything spread to my lymph nodes. I'm stage one. It's a very sort of easy situation for me, at least right now. But you know, the biggest fear that I have is, will it be like that a year from now? Will it be like that five years from now? You know, ask anyone who has cancer and beats it there you're always going to be worried about it coming back that's okay. never going away yeah so at the beginning of the episode you mentioned how you had a miscarriage shortly mm -hmm. before being diagnosed with breast cancer where does pregnancy and fertility play into all of this at this point it doesn't right now honestly it couldn't be further from my mind right now because that was so stressful and traumatic for me. And then this happened. It's like the universe being like, okay, maybe you need to just focus on taking care of yourself. And so I couldn't be a mother with me dealing with, I need to get myself right too. And that's mentally and physically. And so it's not even on my radar. So what are you doing for your own mental health at this point? So therapy, I'm a big proponent of therapy. And actually, fun fact, and my therapist mentioned this to me today because I saw her, I see her on Wednesdays. 
She said, you, our first session was two days before I was diagnosed. No way. Yeah, two days. Because I, I was in between therapists. I like ditched this other one because she was, she always ate like just salad in our sessions and it was just very low budget. So I ditched she her. She ate? During your session, our my former therapist, who I won't, who will remain nameless, I'm like traumatized by just salad now because she would always eat just salad while we were. <laughs> it was just super stupid. So then finally, you're paying her to sit a in lot this of room. money, by the way. Yeah, therapy is not cheap, but very valuable. It just always smelled like a kale Caesar in my fucking sessions, and I was like, I can't. I'm just not going back. So then I was in between. And then finally, I decided to see a Jungian analyst, which there it's quite different than like cognitive behavioral therapy. It's much more about the unconscious. And, you know, that's like the type of therapy my mom is certified in. And then there's also like who she goes to see. At any rate, um, I found her and she's wonderful. And I want her to live with me. And that's not creepy at all. But two days before I was diagnosed, we had our first session. So I walked in sobbing and she was like, I mean, the clipboard and the notebook and all the things came out and she was just writing a lot. But yeah, it's interesting because she's like helping me along this journey. So I'm a big proponent of therapy and I'm not shy about like saying I go to therapy. And I think there's so many people now that talk openly about going to therapy when before it was like, hush, hush, like you can't say you go to therapy. I'm like, no, it's the best thing ever. So that's one. Two, you know, I'm much more intentional with my time. I don't think I was very good at that before. I have a large network of friends. I would say yes to everything. You and I have talked about this before, Harper, but like everything, dinners. I was always like, I want to be there because I don't want to have FOMO and I want to see this person. And then it was with work. I was always like the person that would be like, yes, I'll do it. Yes, I'll do it. And so now I'm like, no, I'm going to say no and I'm not going to feel bad about it. Um, So that and acupuncture, it's the one thing I will do day after chemo. Other than that, you will catch me on the couch doing nothing else, but I will leave the house for acupuncture. And what about chemo prep? Oh, chemo prep. I just wrote a post about this on C-Dream, actually. Chemo prep would be, so the week of is always a bunch of hydration, eating well, all the things I normally do, lots of sleep. But then the day of, Steve will make me one of my favorite smoothie on Minimalist Baker, and we film Hip Hop Chemo. And what is Hip Hop Chemo? It's again, me tying in my love for hip hop music with the fact that I have to go sit and get injected with poison for 45 minutes um, every other Thursday. So we put on a hip hop jam. I dance ridiculously around our apartment to it. And then we sort of post it out. And this is a way for me to feel better. We have our thing. But then it's also to let my community know, like, see, see what I'm talking about? Like, I'm not letting this, like, slow me down. I'm like doing the running man in my living room a smoothie and a mason jar in my hand. I love it. I love that you do that so yeah. much. And I love that you Because you love music it. too. So, I mean, like you would do something so similar to that, but it would be to like Wilco or like Radiohead. It's funny. When I had surgery back in 2012, I remember my best friend in Israel saying to me, what are you doing? How are you spending your time when I was re- recovering? Mm-hmm. And I wasn't listening to music. And, music is you. And she said to me, how could you possibly be recovering and getting through this. But I was in such a dark place at that time that I didn't even think like, wow, if I listen to this, whether it's upbeat or not music, Mm. it's going to be helpful. I was just in such a funk that there was no way to even think, oh, let me go on Spotify right now 
and do this. It'd be hard to enjoy it when you're in a dark place, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like, there's a lot of moments in my life that I can attach, you know, dark period includes this music or happy time includes this music. That's something that's just sort of Same. this black hole. Yeah. Um, not to that. be depressing, but no. really it's Lay the it truth. I totally forgot about music in that time. Um, so one of the things I want to know is what's been the most challenging part of all of this? Yeah, I touched on it a little bit, but the thought of recurrence is probably my biggest source of anxiety. Um, you know, I think about it often and I'm not even out of the, I'm not even out of my treatment and I still think about it. I'm like, wow, like this is going really well. When is something else really shitty going to happen to me? And I'm going to like find out like a year from now that my cancer's back, but it's in my liver or it's in my brain or common places where things sort of, you know, happen after. And I've, I've talked to, you know, mutual friends of ours that have gone through stuff and other people. And I'm like, does that feeling ever go away? And they're like, sadly, it does not. Like, you're always going to think about it. And I'm like, cool. So I guess the moral of the story is it's always going to be in the back of my mind, but as long as it doesn't make its way to the forefront of my mind, we're good. So you found this blog right when you were diagnosed that you found really valuable mm -hmm. that sort of empowered you to create your own. You have Steve and your mom and support system there. Mm -hmm. Have you found people that were going through similar situations at the same time, already recovered, already, already in remission, mm -hmm. that have been valuable for you to have in your network? Yes. And actually, funny enough, it's not just people that survive breast cancer, but other types of cancer. Like we talk about Cece, Lauren Chiarello, people like that, that are in our entrepreneur network that I see just fucking killing it. I mean, and Lauren, shout out to Lauren, three-time survivor. Or two She's times incredible. Times. I mean, and the things that she does and just the, the imprint that she has in the space is just fantastic. But, you know, you see people like that and you're like, okay, I'm going to be okay. So it's a reminder. It is a reminder. It's not people that are in the hospital all day, every day and reminding you like that this is a depressing situation. You can still live your life. Mm -hmm. So given that you started this blog, mm -hmm. what is your advice for women or people in general under 35, under 40, as it relates to breast cancer and taking care of your health? So I always tell people to be your own advocate. And the reason I say this specifically for women under 40 is there are doctors out there that adopt the sort of wait and see on lumps and, and, you know, symptoms. And I personally would not accept that. So if I had gone to my doctor and she said, I would just like to kind of keep an eye on this, that wouldn't have been enough for me because you know, your body, you know, when something's not right and something's just. You know, like there's been times before where I could have easily thought something was suspicious, but I just didn't feel it in my body. Like, you know what I mean? Like my lymph nodes have been swollen before and it's because I had the flu and then they were, it was gone in like two days, but I never panicked because I just, you just know, you just know when something's not right. I just knew, thankfully I have a great doctor who gets me and sent me out. Don't get me on my soapbox about insurance and, you know, this all being a business and why don't we have this type of situation? Why doesn't insurance cover mammograms for women under 40 when they do in other countries? But to be honest, if your doctor's not listening to you, then that's time for a new doctor. Like be your own advocate. Don't, don't accept what doesn't make you feel good is my biggest piece of advice. Yeah. And I think that's about trusting your gut. 
and knowing and you went what through that. People told you you were fine. Yeah. yeah. And you were not fine. I was told that I had bronchitis and pneumonia when I had a cyst the size of a golf ball in Correct. my lungs. And you didn't accept it. And you kept going. But it's really going with your gut and yeah. understanding, like, something doesn't feel right. This is not me. I don't know how I feel about this doctor. I'm questioning it. I don't know how, yeah. what's going on here, but something's not right. And I need to stick with that and follow through. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important. Is there anything that you feel we didn't majorly address here? No, I mean, this was this was great. I feel like what I want people to get out of listening to this is just that it doesn't have to, having any type of invisible illness, whether it's cancer or a mental illness or anything, it doesn't have to paralyze you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this was such an incredible conversation, truly. I love yeah. that you're so willing to be so open and honest. I mean, the number of emails she sent me, before we scheduled this, after we scheduled this, of like, we're just going to have a real conversation. We're just going to be us. I'm an open book. Whatever you want to talk about, we can talk about. And I truly, truly appreciate that. And I know that you're going to be fine and you're going to get through this. And I'm always rooting for you. Yay. So if people, absolutely. So if people want to follow along your journey and also potentially hire you as their career coach, where can they find you? Yes. So I have two, the best way probably, and then you can get a flavor for who I am is on Instagram. So I'm at Tiffany Diba and that's, um, and Harper will link to it, but that's personal and business. And then at Sea Dream is my cancer journey and that's all cancer all of the time. Thank you so much, my dear. Thanks Harp. Love ya. You too. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.